everyone. My name is Susan Taylor, and welcome back to the Family Source Surrogacy Podcast. We are so excited to be here again and to share our stories with everyone out there. We started this podcast to discuss everything within the world of third-party reproduction. We hope by telling our stories, this podcast will inform, entertain, and educate our listeners about the ups and downs associated with starting their family with the help of an egg donor, a surrogate, or oftentimes both. In our last episode, we dove into some of the legalities regarding the recent change in legislation in New York State surrounding surrogacy. In this episode, we thought we'd explore some of the medical aspects associated with this new statute. That's why we've invited Dr. Melvin H. Thornton II to join us. Dr. Thornton is double board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive medicine. He has been helping families in the tri-state area for over 18 years. Dr. Thornton completed his OBGYN internship and residency, as well as his reproductive medicine fellowship at the University of Southern California. He received additional training in advanced reproductive surgery at the Cleveland Clinic before joining the faculty at Columbia University. Although his interests include all aspects in the treatment of infertility, he is recognized as being one of the world's leading experts in egg donation and surrogacy. His patients describe him as a reassuring, caring, and personable physician. He is currently a member of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, and the American Society of Addiction Medicine. about me. As I mentioned, my name is Susan Taylor. I have been in third-party reproduction for about seven years, and I currently work for a third-party agency as a director of intake and match operations. I'm also a married mom with four little ones, and I've been a gestational surrogate twice for two different families. As well, I am a licensed home birth midwife in the DFW Texas area. podcast is brought to you by Family Source Consultants. Family Source Consultants is a leading authority in third-party reproductive services. They've been helping create families in the United States and internationally since 2007. Having helped bring over 1,000 little babies into the world, it's their mission to make egg donation and gestational surrogacy a beautiful journey for everyone involved. Their team of experts work with individuals and couples from all walks of life wanting to create and expand their family. They provide a professional, personalized service to ensure that your experience is incredibly positive and fulfilling. One of the special things about Family Source Consultants is how many of their staff have personally experienced third-party reproduction. Their team includes former surrogates, egg donors, a licensed midwife, a social worker, and parents who have created their families through surrogacy or egg donation. Family Source Consultants provides their clients with an intimate understanding of what clients are going through and what they can expect. They are knowledgeable and passionate about helping you realize your dreams of having a family and will be there for you every step of the way. To learn more about Family Source Consultants, please visit their website at www.familysourceconsultants.com. All right. 
Well, welcome to our podcast, Dr. Thornton. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Susan. Pleasure to be here. Yes, we are excited to pick your brain about all things third-party reproduction and New York now that there's the new um, laws being passed that we can utilize gestational or, or pay gestational surrogates. So um, we're really excited to talk to you. Um, I wanted to get started by just asking you to give us a b- brief history about your background. Wow, that's... Uh, <laughs> that's a loaded question. That's, 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 a, that's a very tough question. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, my, my background is um, I did all my training in Los Angeles and the reason why I did all my training in Los Angeles, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I hated winter. I used to always watch the Rose Bowl. And I said, my goodness, one day I'm going to live out there because it's sunny and warm and it's around Christmas and New Year's. So I ended up doing all my training at the University of Southern California, best experience in the world. Uh, did my fellowship there. I uh, did some special training in pelvic surgery back at the Cleveland Clinic, mainly to see if I could live back in Cleveland or not, but I realized quickly I couldn't live in Cleveland any longer. So I did my pelvic surgery fellowship right after residency and went and did my fellowship back at the University of Southern California. I was on the faculty at the University of Southern California until uh, the program director that was at USC went to Columbia to take the chair at Columbia. And he asked me to join him at Columbia University. So I uh, joined in Columbia University in 2000 and then in 2015, I decided that I wanted to uh, go into practice and left the academic world behind to fulfill uh, my private practice. Um, um, I can say my future in private practice. So uh, that's my, my background. Currently I'm practicing in New York City. Uh, the laboratory where we do our procedures is in New York City is at a facility called Global Fertility and Genetics. Okay. Uh, we also will be having a, a laboratory in Connecticut starting and hopefully by the end of April, beginning of May as well to do procedures in Connecticut. Wonderful. So the weather up there doesn't bother you? As, is it not as brutal as Ohio winters? Well, you know, what's interesting, Susan, is that uh, when they asked me to come to Columbia, I was really worried about the weather, but mainly I was worried about the, the sunshine because in Ohio, because of the lake, uh, everything is gray. I remember uh, when I went to Cleveland Clinic for that year, that surgery fellowship, um, I never saw the sun because you get up early in the morning, you go to work, you come home late at night, there's no sun. And uh, I said, this must be the same way in New York. They said, are you, are you kidding me? The sun shines all the time in the winter. And it's true, even though it's cold, the sun is okay. shining and all you need is a little sunshine to brighten your day, right? It's true. And who doesn't love New York City, really? I mean, exactly. (laughs) So what made you decide to specialize in third party reproduction? You know, it's a very, very good question. And I look back and ask myself why. And the real reason, because I saw there's a need and um, Mm -hmm. I don't like to brag about myself, but uh, the one thing about me is I do take time and I listen Mm -hmm. uh, to couples. And what I realized is that no one was listening to uh, patients who wanted to undergo egg donation, surrogacy. And then the other thing that's really important, no one was listening to the egg donors. And I realized that egg donors were not getting, um, you know, because anytime you do something, you want to make sure that you're getting um, whatever you're, you're 
getting a benefit out of it. And I found that the egg donors, they were just kind of being a number and no one was consulting them to explain what the process is like. No one consulted them to say, you know, are there risks for the future? Can you have children? Because you know, a lot of these young women have questions like this, but they are afraid to ask the doctor and they, they would never right. ask the doctor or they asked the nurse and the nurse would say, you have to ask the doctor. They never want to ask the doctor. And the same thing for the intended parents, you know, no one kind of like uh, bridged their gap to, you know, how do you feel about egg donation? You know, they're just told you need, to, you need to work with an egg donor and that was it. No one explained the process to them very well. Uh, I always tell patients that I am like a bridge and uh, on one side is you're starting a fertility journey and on the other side, there's having a baby uh, with your eggs, having a baby with donor eggs, having a family with the use of a surrogate or adoption. And my main goal as a reproductive specialist is to not let you get stuck in the middle of the bridge. Because if you're stuck in the middle of the bridge, things become very complicated psychologically. So I help patients, I help intended parents, I help egg donors kind of make sure they work their way through that process and get over that bridge and get to the journey and outcome that they're looking for. So it sounds like your history of being an educator is still 100% utilized in this role as in third-party reproduction as a, as a doctor. Yeah, it's, it's just, um, I, I, I love what I do. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's just fascinating because when you look at um, couples are undergoing egg donation and surrogacy. One of the biggest things that you realize before they get to that point, they've been given so much bad news. They've had mm -hmm. so much negative, and you know, your test is negative, your egg quality is mm -hmm. poor, uh, your uterus is not healthy. Uh, they've been given so much negative information that they're kind of beat up. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they have so much hope when they do third-party reproduction kind of gives me the satisfaction I need out of my career. Yeah. Uh, it takes someone who's you know, beaten down emotionally and think they would never have a child, like in you know, same-sex couples who their whole life thought they would never be able to have the child that they wanted. And to mm -hmm. see them hold that baby in their arms and uh, it's just the most rewarding thing I've, uh, I've experienced in my career. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, it is definitely special work. Yeah, really. And the thing about third party reproduction is that the, uh, you, you need a good team behind you uh, mm -hmm. because there's a lot involved. There's a lot of working pieces that, you know, you know, get to that, to get to a successful journey. You know, you, you got to have mm -hmm. the, uh, the team from the clinical standpoint, you got to have a team from the surrogacy agency, you got to have a team from the legal team. Uh, you got to right. have the egg donor. And so there's so many moving parts to, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I look at myself as a, uh, I, I don't really like classical music, but I went to Oberlin. So everyone thought that I played a musical instrument because I went to Oberlin College. But <laughs> I look at myself as the conductor and making sure, you know, we were making beautiful music and everything is moving smoothly and we're getting to a, uh, you know, a nice endpoint with a good outcome for everybody. Right. Are you still doing any of the educational um, endeavors that you did previously while you're also working as an endocrinologist? Uh, yes, I do. I, I still uh, work with residents as well as fellows. Um, mm -hmm. I love teaching. I love to, uh, you know, if, if I could, I always tell the, the residents is that the best thing in life is to be a reproductive specialist because uh, it's so rewarding and, you know, 
when you're going to OBGYN and people are delivering babies at three o'clock in the morning, I say, you know what? The best thing about reproductive medicine is that there's no emergency transfer that occurs at three o'clock in the morning. So. <laughs> Well, I don't know if you know this about me, but I am a midwife. So I actually did deliver a baby at, well, 2 a.m. two days ago. So I know that life all too well. (laughs) Well, See, Susan, there there you go. You know, for for me, that was was also another um, reason why I went into reproductive medicine, because all the babies I delivered always delivered after midnight, you know, from six o'clock to 1130. (laughs) There was nothing going on. But at midnight till five o'clock in the morning, everyone came in to have a baby. So. Yes. Yeah. I admire you for <laughs> still doing that. Work. Lady. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's questionable some days for sure, especially when you're going off of a couple hours of sleep the rest of the day and having to see patients. But yeah. But you know, not, not, not to get off topic, Susan, but you're a midwife. I would say uh, midwives actually shaped my career. Um, really? And the reason why I say that is because um, as a resident, we used to have to go to the midwife floor and you know to learn from the midwives and they really taught me a lot of holistic approaches they taught me how to approach women how to help women yeah. understand the process you know because you know when you do it in regular medicine no one teaches that part but you know working with the midwives i i learned you know so much and, and uh, it's really like i say it shaped my career to this day on how i interact with my patients i love that I'm so glad you that you're able fa- to. You guys are amazing. I mean, like, who else, yes. <laughs> who else tells a, a pregnant woman in labor to go take a shower, walk around, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Eat something. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So tell us more about Global Fertility. Yeah, so Global Fertility and Genetics, uh, located in New York City and right on 57th and Park Avenue. Uh, it's a program that really prides itself in a concierge approach to third-party medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, they like to say a white glove approach where you know they kind of walk everyone through the process, make sure they have one person designed to help them go through the entire process to navigate everything from financials to freezing sperm to you know getting everything set up for the embryo transfer. So you know, like I mentioned before, you, you got to have a good team behind you. So this is a good team that has a lot of experience working with surrogates, working with egg donors. Uh, we're, re- we're revamping a lot of the things that we do right now because of the new law in New York. Mm-hmm. We're making sure that we're uh, all the regular, because the New York State's going to have new regulations on how to work with uh, surrogates here in New York State. One of the things that was interesting is that even though I'm a physician that practices in New York, I have to register uh, with the state to work with uh, surrogates. Um, wow. So there's a lot, of, a lot of nuances that, you know, people don't realize that go on behind the scenes that, you know, we're preparing for, we're revamping our egg donor program because in New York state, uh, unlike other states, is that the donors have to be well educated on the process. They also have to be given the option of going into a registry uh, for all other women who've donated eggs. Uh, so wow. you have to counsel them on that. And if you don't do that counseling, the state will come in and say, oh, you didn't do the counseling properly. So, you know, we're in the process of making sure everything is compliant with the new laws that are in place and new regulations, which to say. Wow. Yeah. And we talked to um, attorney Phoebe Sadler uh, on our last podcast and about the New York legislation. And it was very interesting to hear how different it is. Um, 
and how surrogate and now hearing talking because we talked about surrogacy not even egg donation but really it sounds like it, it's just really um surrogate and egg donation friendly um we talked about how it really seemed to side with the surrogate and really protecting her um which is great of course uh but it's it's just really interesting to hear how how different it is from so many other states yeah, it's like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the uh, the regulations in New York State are tougher than FDA regulations. Yeah. Um, and, and the rule of thumb is that you have to go by the guidelines that have the strictest. So because we're in New York and your regulations are tougher than the FDA, we have to go by New York regulations. But other states just have to go by FDA. Right. Um, so it, we had talked earlier, there, there are certain types of uh, intended parents that can create embryos in New York, but they can't transfer them to a surrogate. Uh, someone that has an infectious disease, so there are some intended parents that may have a hepatitis or intended parents that have HIV. Those embryos cannot be transferred to a surrogate in New York State. Those embryos have to be uh, transported out to another state for the uh, surrogate to have a transport. So. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different world in New York and the, the regulations are designed to make sure uh, you're protecting the surrogate, you're protecting the egg donor. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, we, we really understand them. And you know, it's, it's a lot of paperwork that you have to do to make sure everything is compliant with New York State. Yeah, it sounds like it. Speaking of um, intended parents with infectious diseases, I know that you specialize in working with HIV positive and intended parents. Um, yes. Can you talk to us more about the intricacies of working with these patients? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I have to credit my days at Columbia University because we were the first uh, program in the U.S. who worked with the uh, couples who were what we used to call discordant in HIV. And then that was in the late 90s. Uh, typically, at uh, that time, we were working with straight couples where the male had, was HIV positive, and uh, before there was no options for donor sperm for those couples or not to have a child at all. Um, but at that program we developed, uh, the, the idea was the sperm wash should be able to remove all your bacteria, all your viruses. And if you take one sperm and inject that sperm directly to the egg, which is called the intracytoplasmic sperm injection or ICSI procedure, you will decrease your, your risk or make the risk of transmission uh, undetectable. So back in the uh, late 90s and 2000s, this was a research-based approach. And we actually had to submit everything to the IRB or the Investigation Review Board at the university to get approval. And it was really tough to get approval, but once we did get approval, you know, we had to present data to show that this was safe uh, so we wrote a lot of different papers on HIV use for fertility, ICSI use for fertility and you know, HIV discordant couples. And what we found at that time was that there is no transmission of the HIV virus to the babies. And back then, the research protocol, you know, back then there was no antiretroviral medications where, mm -hmm. you know, people had undetectable viral loads for HIV like they do now. Back then, people had positive viral loads. Uh, and still with positive viral loads, there was no transmission of HIV to, to any of the babies that were born. Mm -hmm. So my experience goes back 20 years now. And um, you know, now it's much easier because everyone's on the antiretroviral medications and their viral loads are negative. So 
the fact that there's no circulating virus, you know, definitely there's not going to be circulating virus in the semen, so it makes it much easier as far as um, the process goes and not worrying as much as will there be a risk. And mm -hmm. Recently, I think last year, there was a nice meta-analysis that came out showing that there's no transmission of HIV with the use of ICSI um, uh, in the IVF. Right. I know when we have um, HIV positive intended parents, a lot of our surrogates, I mean, some are definitely like, sure, um, I'm open to working with them. And then others just have the, the common question of, is there any risk that I will get HIV by doing this? Um, and of course the answer is no. Answer is uh, no. Yeah. And, and those are, you know, I, I consult with the surrogates and, and that's part of my job I enjoy the most, as you say, educator. I, mm -hmm. I enjoy educating the surrogates and explaining the process. You know, because you know, a lot of people don't know what goes on behind the scenes. They just think an embryo magically shows up. So you know, I tell them how the process works, how the sperm wash works. I show them the, the ICSI procedure so they really understand, oh, we're just working with one sperm. You know, now I feel really comfortable. And then they'll say, well, and now the data shows that there's no transmission. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they feel very comfortable going forward with, with, that, um, with that journey. Right. It's very fascinating how, it, how the embryos are created. Um, and the sperm wash and all that, I've done a lot of research on it just because I, <laughs> I like to know things. So um, I was, I've always been so fascinated by how the embryos are created using the genetics from an HIV positive intended parent. Yeah, it's like, you know, the, the um, you know, I look, I look back on, uh, on a historical perspective of HIV and fertility and you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s, it was just a wish to have a child if you're HIV positive for men as well as women, uh, to the point where we were able to help them with the IVF procedures and ICSI, injecting the sperm directly into the egg, um, to like the 2000s, probably like the 2010, 2011, to where uh, for straight couples, instead of doing the IVF process, you'd actually do it artificial insemination where just by washing the sperm and placing the sperm into the uterus was found not to transmit HIV. And then uh, there are protocols now where you can use the antiretrovirals such as the PrEP uh, medications that we actually give to couples, straight couples who want to get pregnant on their own. We have the woman take PrEP um, during the time that she's ovulating to, you know, further decrease her risk of, you know, getting infected with the HIV virus. So We've gone all the way from not helping couples have children to now that, you know, straight couples can actually have intercourse and have children despite being HIV discordant. Wow. It's truly fascinating and how science has come so far. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I, I consider myself a dinosaur because uh, <laughs> I actually started, I started my career literally about uh, 12 years after the first baby from IVF was born. So you know, back in the day when we didn't know like which embryos were going to survive. So we said, okay, let's transfer six embryos and let's see what happens, you know, to now we're really <laughs> transferring one. So I've lived the whole gamut. Yeah. So that's a question I always have and that, and cause I work with surrogates and in intake. Um, and I get that a lot is how, the science behind how many is there, how, what makes it positive? A lot of people think you put two in to have a better chance of being pregnant with one, but I feel like, and you can tell me is, is the professional that the science is becoming so 
good with this that if you're putting two in, you're intending to have multiples. That's Would correct. You, I mean, yeah. You know, be, uh, you know. Previously, the the whole thing, the way IVF is developed, is that as you know, embryos in order to implant have to become blastocysts, and you know, before the 2000s, we didn't know how to get those embryos to culture to the blastocyst stage. So it was, it was very common to put embryos in on day three. And you always put in more embryos on day three because you didn't know which one's going to make it to the blastocyst stage inside the uterus mm -hmm. uh, to the point where we could let them culture to the blastocyst stage. And then by doing that, it became common ground to say, you know what, maybe we should just transfer two or three at the most, depending upon the recipient's age. Mm -hmm. And nowadays with the, the laboratory culture techniques, the improvements in the embryology laboratory and PGT, um, it's your success rates are the same if you transfer one embryo versus transferring two. The only difference by transferring two is that you're increasing your risk of twins mm -hmm. as well as triplets because you know, I always tell patients, if you put in one embryo, there's a one to 2% chance it can split and you get identicals. So imagine if you put in two, there's still that one to 2% chance that the embryo can split and get triplets or quadruplets. Mm -hmm. So, you know, putting in two, um, you know, we really recommend is transfer one, particularly if they've done PGT. The only time I will transfer two, uh, especially working with a surrogate, is if uh, the intended mother uh, is older, and which means that the eggs may not be as healthy as a, a, an embryo from a, a young, healthy egg donor. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, if they're not tested, then we may transfer too. Um, but the key thing is to counsel the surrogate and make sure she understands, you know, the risk of twins and not just uh, being pregnant with twins, but the risk to her with twins, which is mm -hmm. just diabetes, hypertension, premature labor, preterm contractions. Um, and what I, what I found through the years of working with surrogates, you're going to have two types of surrogates. You're going to have the surrogates that are uh, well-educated and they know they're only going to transfer one. And then I have okay. the surrogates who are kind of like, they're newbies, they're not really sure. So they say, okay, I'll transfer two. Sometimes they say, oh, I'll agree to transfer three. And I say, nope, let me explain. We're not going to do three. Three is not a number that we use in fertility anymore. <laughs> right. So we're going to bring that down to one. Two is the maximum. Um, but, you know, you know, intended parents now really, you know, you know they really want to decrease the risk as well. So they, they do look to transfer a single embryo, uh, particularly international clients. You know, international clients not having the insurance, you know, if those babies, those twins deliver early, then they're responsible for that, you know, NICU bill mm -hmm. by the time the babies are born. So, you know, that's it's another advantage for international clients is to do a single embryo transfer. Yeah. Yeah. I always notice that the like you said, the new surrogates are like, oh yeah, and twins, they're so much fun. And and our experienced surrogates are always, nope, a single embryo transfer is good for me. And <laughs> almost across the board, unless it's been somebody who had a really great twin pregnancy and they, that happens. And, you know, then they're like, yeah, I've done it before. I can do it again. Um, but for the most part, I would say our experienced surrogates are definitely sticking to a single embryo transfer. Yeah, single embryo transfer, especially if they're blastocysts. I mean, I've, I've seen some intended parents who are using their own, intended mothers who are using their own eggs, may only have day three embryos. Uh, so we know day three embryos tend not to be as healthy as the blastocysts. So mm -hmm. in those cases, I will counsel the surrogate and say, in order for this intended parent to have the best chance of having one, it may be best to transfer two okay. if they're day three. But if they're blastocysts and they're PGT tested and they're normal, 
the best outcome with the transfer of a single embryo. Mm -hmm. And what is the most common? Is it day five is the most common um, age of a blastocyst? Yeah, so uh, a blast, an embryo can become a blastocyst, which is the stage where it has the ability to implant either five days or six days. Uh, nowadays, with the culture medias, we're sometimes culturing some of these embryos to day seven, but typically embryos become blastocysts by day five, day six. Um, so by allowing the embryos to culture out to the stage that they're the healthiest, it allows us to limit the number of embryos that we have to transfer. Mm -hmm. Do you see a difference in utilizing fresh eggs versus frozen ones? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the popular thing nowadays because of uh, vitrification of the eggs is that you see a lot of egg banks uh, popping up and uh, offer, and a lot of clients want to use the egg banks, not because the success rates are better, but because when a woman makes a decision that she wants to use an egg donor, they want to use it right, they want to go right away. And by using a frozen egg, you have that ability. You can uh, purchase an allotment of the frozen eggs, you can ship them, you can thaw them, and you can fertilize them, you know, pretty much realistically in a week period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, however, success rates have been shown to be uh, less than a fresh egg. So when I counsel patients on fresh versus frozen, you know, the most important thing I have to ask them is, you know, what is your, what are your family goals? How many children are you looking to have? And if someone says, I'm single, I just want to have one baby, then yes, they're a good candidate for frozen eggs because you're only going to get a certain allotment of frozen eggs. So you're going to get about six is what most of these egg banks will uh, give the allotment. And what people don't realize is that in order to have a healthy embryo, uh, you need to go through at least four to five eggs to get the one healthy embryo. So if you get an allotment of six, uh, you're probably going to end up with just one healthy blastocyst, maybe two at the most. And then the other thing you have to look at is because the egg is frozen, we have to use the ICSI procedure because there's a shell that surrounds the egg that gets hardened and you can't let uh, regular insemination occur in the laboratory. So you have to inject the individual egg into individual sperm into the egg. And if someone has a poor sperm count or not an adequate sperm count, they don't do well with the frozen eggs. So in those cases, we recommend that they uh, consider using fresh. But uh, intended parents, same-sex couples, intended parents, uh, always recommend using fresh eggs because they have more eggs to work with, more embryos to work with. Um, you know, and straight couples who are going through egg donation process, I always encourage them to consider uh, fresh eggs. And you know, the idea is that you have more embryos to choose from which will lead to a better outcome. But that couple mm -hmm. comes in and say, look, I just want to have one baby. That's all I'm worried about. Uh, then they would be a good candidate for frozen eggs. Fascinating. Um, what is your criteria for determining who are the best candidates to be a gestational carrier or surrogate? I know that's the more common term to everyone out there, probably listeners, but what's the criteria for you and your clinic for a gestational carrier? Yeah, pretty much follow the same criteria that's set up by uh, American Society of Reproductive Medicine is that, mm -hmm. you know, they should be between 21 to 44. Uh, you know, that's an interesting number of the age because people always say, well, what do you see as the average age? Now I tell people maybe like 34, 35 is the average age of the surrogate that I see. Uh, they have to have at least one uh, delivery. 
And when people say, well, what's a good surrogate? A good surrogate is someone who's young and healthy. They've had a healthy pregnancy and a healthy delivery. Uh, but other criteria that we we're looking for, you know, we don't want her to have too many C-sections. So, you know, some, some clinics will say two C-sections max. I do say three. And the reason why I go three is because the risk is still low. Mm-hmm. If someone has had three C-sections. Um, but if someone's looking to have a sibling journey and the initial surrogate has already had three C-sections, then at that point, I would say it's better to find a carrier who's only had one or two C-sections or no C-sections if you want to work with her for a sibling. Um, but young, healthy, um, you know, two to three C-sections, three max, you know, healthy BMI. BMIs are tough. Uh, I know some programs are very strict on their BMIs. You know, I like to see a BMI uh, that's at least below 30 or below is what I like to see. But, you know, there are cases where you have to be individual and there's some women that may have a BMI at 31 and don't look like they have a BMI at 31. And right, some people right. have a BMI of 28 that look like their BMI is like 38. So yes. I think the big thing is being individual to see like, uh, if that, uh, person will qualify. Uh, other things is, uh, we want to make sure that they've had term deliveries, you know, no preterm deliveries. Uh, nothing that kind of raises a red flag uh, during their uh, previous pregnancies at all. Right. Would things like gestational diabetes or hypertension, would those be things that you would disqualify for? No, I mean, uh, gestational diabetes depends on, you know, what type of gestational diabetes. If it was just diet control, that's perfectly mm-hmm. fine. If you have somebody that had to take insulin, in those cases, I usually uh, will not approve. Mm-hmm. Uh, hypertension is a tricky one because a lot of people will have, you know, uh, not preeclampsia, but they may have this gestational high blood pressure, mm-hmm. whereas postpartum things go back to normal. Uh, but if someone has severe hypertension where, you know, they were put on bed rest at 28, 30 weeks, they delivered at 34 weeks because of severe preeclampsia, then those cases I would, I would exclude. Right. Um, when it comes to doing your medical screening for your surrogates, are you allowing them to do those remotely right now, given the current state of our country with COVID? Are you still having them come to the clinic to have those done? That's that's a good question. You know, I hate COVID. Like everyone hates COVID. (laughs) COVID is the worst thing that's happened to surrogacy. And and particularly for me, and the reason why is because that face-to-face time you have when your surrogate comes to your clinic is so valuable. Mm-hmm. Number one, it allows her to kind of know where the clinic is located. You know, did she like the hotel she stayed in? Was it, was it a crappy hotel? Did she want to stay in a different place? Did she have to rent a car? What airport? And then when they come to the clinic to get to meet the staff, um, you know, it, it's just that face-to-face getting to know that surrogate, getting her to know your clinic and know your staff and feeling comfortable, I think is really, really important. The other thing that COVID has, you know, done that's really, uh, that's, you know, taken away a lot of good things is that, you know, how many people you can have in the transfer room, you know, typically, you know, we used to allow the surrogate to come with whoever, you know, partner, husband, significant other, friend, you know, they would be able to come into the transfer room to experience the, the transfer with her. Mm-hmm. But now because of COVID is limited just to having one person, um, so the things that I love about surrogacy, the interaction that actually I need as a physician to kind of get to know that surrogate is limited for me because we, you know, I do allow for remote uh, screening uh, because it's very difficult to fly in somewhere and have to quarantine when you get back home. It's not right for me to do that. So 
I do do uh, remote screening. Um, sometimes it's difficult for the surrogates to do remote screening because they may not be live near a clinic uh, that's accessible to them. Sometimes I have a, a surrogate right now that needs a saline sonogram and where she lives, the OBGYN, they only do them in the hospitals. For some reason, I don't understand, but she's got to wait till he gets OR time. So it just delays a lot of things where, you know, okay. they fly in the day before, they have their screen, they go home the same day, they sign the consents, they meet the clinic staff, everyone's on board, they sign the consents. Um, I think that's the way it should be, but unfortunately, hopefully the vaccinations and, you know, crushing the curve on COVID, we can kind of get back to normal. Right. Yeah, we're seeing that kind of across the board with a lot of clinics, just allowing it to happen remotely. But you bring up such good points about, I mean, because I'm a, I'm a two-time surrogate and yeah, it was really nice to go to that medical screening. And like you said, know that is my hotel in a good place. Am I going to be able, if I'm on bed rest after the transfer, is there going to be an easy restaurant to get to or have food delivered to me? Do I like where I'm at? Is it easy to get to the clinic? And then also there's so many nerves the day of the transfer. So it's nice to know exactly how what that transportation looks like and how long it's going to take to get there and you know all the things you talked about you know different details of that day um it's nice to have that little run through with the medical screening yeah i mean like uh you know one of the interesting things because of covid right now uh this is like the best time to have surrogates come to the screen because all the hotels are empty uh it's like uh, <laughs> Flights are cheap, <laughs> so this would be the right. uh, But unfortunately, it's not the case. Well, I'll ask you since. This is going to be my final question, but since we're talking about COVID, I'm going to ask you the big million dollar question. Are there any medical risks that you know of getting the COVID-19 vaccination for somebody who is pregnant or about to become pregnant? Uh, the answer is a resounding no. Um, all the uh, American College of OBGYN, American Society of Reproductive Medicine uh, have all looked at the data and it's been shown to be safe. There's actually a pregnancy re registry right now that's going on that they're looking at and it's shown to be safe in pregnancy. And the key thing everyone has to remember is that you're not injecting a live virus. Uh, this is a, a dead part of the dead virus. So you're just generating an immune response. So it's definitely safe for everyone to take. Uh, what I've been advising the uh, intended parents or even just couples who are going to get pregnant on their own is that if you're going to take the, the vaccine, take it before the pregnancy. Uh, you want to wait at least two weeks after your second dose um, before you consider undergoing a transfer. But I think everyone should be vaccinated either before mm -hmm. the pregnancy, but if they don't get vaccinated, they should feel comfortable being vaccinated during the pregnancy as well. Yeah. Well, I know our listeners are going to be excited to hear about that and that that's a big discussion within our agency and in our support groups with all of our surrogates and, and most clinics now are, really, if they're not requiring the vaccination, they are strongly recommending the surrogate. And of course, they, we're seeing the intended parents, um, you know, wanting their surrogates also to be vaccinated. So right. I, and I, I feel as it becomes more available to get vaccinated, we'll definitely see more and more of um, our surrogates being asked to do this. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough situation, but uh, I think it's, I think it's a, it's the right thing to do. It's a safe thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's a conversation that frequently, um, and, you know, it's a choice that the surrogate and intended parents have to come together to, to decide what they want to do. Yeah. 
Yep, it's a sensitive topic <laughs> we have seen. So pivoting a little bit, um, I want to talk more about the PGT testing. Is that something that you recommend? Is it, is, do most of your intended parents do it? Yeah, most, I would say about 90% of my intended parents will do the PGT testing. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of those things where having more information is always better. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that when you look at research, uh, research is, doesn't take into account the type of treatment you're doing. And what I mean by that is that if you look at the scientific data, it says, does PGT testing have a better uh, advantage than not testing? The answer is the success rates are the same. Mm -hmm. However, when you're working with a surrogate, uh, what you have to realize is that every time that surrogate comes in for a transfer, it's costing the attendant parents financially. So you mm -hmm. wanna to try to be successful with the first, definitely by the second transfer. And so we know that even from a young, healthy egg donor, and I look at the embryo, so this is a grade A embryo, about 40% of those embryos, 30 to 40% of those embryos are gonna be abnormal as far as chromosomes, okay? So I know that this is the case, that even though the embryo looks perfect, it you know, may be abnormal. So by testing them, it allows me to identify which embryos that can be transferred first to give her the, the surrogate the best chance of being pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. uh, compared to not testing, and then maybe have to go to two or three transfers. And then what happens is that after you get to the third transfer and the surrogate's not successful, then the attendant parents will say, maybe I should change surrogates. And the surrogates are saying, what's wrong with me? How come I can't get pregnant? I've had my own babies. Then we end up doing invasive testing, such as a ERA, which is an endometrial receptivity assay to kind of see what is the timing is she receptive? Is the timing correct to put the embryo in? So I think by getting more information, particularly when you work with a surrogate, you want to do those, you want to do the PGT, identify which embryos you have that are normal, and then uh, and, you know, transfer and have great success rates because you're transferring very good quality, healthy embryos initially. And then it also allows for family balancing. You know, some couples would like to have a boy or a girl, PGT is the only way that we can allow for the family balancing. Right. So before we wrap up today, anything else you want to share with us that we haven't gone over? Um, let me think. I mean, we, we talked about <laughs> a lot. I mean, I can talk all day, Susan, if you haven't guessed it. Yeah, I could talk all day about third party reproduction too. So <laughs> I feel like I've asked a lot of questions, but I've could ask you probably, I could keep you on here till eight o'clock tonight, asking you more questions, so. And I would enjoy it, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, um, you know, the world of fertility treatments comes so far and, you know, I'm excited for New York and the new surrogacy law that's passed. And not only just for surrogacy, but it's also given a lot of rights to people, single women, same-sex couples uh, who are using third-party reproduction it makes it safe for surrogates, you know, basically the law is an advocate for surrogates as well as egg donors, make sure it protects their rights, make sure they're not vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So it does a, a lot of good things. And so it's an exciting time to be a reproductive specialist that loves third party reproduction here in New York. Yeah, that's what we were talking about um, on our last show with, with Phoebe, the attorney in New York and how excited we all are. And I was like, only somebody in this world would be this excited about, um, well, such, such a small thing, but yet such a monumental um, change in laws. I mean, and it's surprising that New York 
is so behind the times. <laughs> yeah, it was great. You know, what was interesting was that um, I've had couples where, you know, it's, it's the same thing where even in uncompensated surrogacy, when the baby's born in New York before the law, whoever birthed the child, that's the name that went on the birth certificate. And so then the intended mother or the intended parent would have to adopt the child and had to go through the, the whole adoption process. And, uh, you know, sometimes that could be a nightmare. You know, it's so much uncertainty yeah. that, you know, now with this law, people feel comfortable. Like it, it, I think in some aspects of it, it's a little too strict, um, yeah. but I think it's a, it's a best place to start. Yeah. And I'm sure it will evolve over time into something that's kind of like a, beneficial for everyone. Right. That's what we talked about too. We're like, you know what, we're going to come back to this in three months and six months and in a year to see how the law changes as it really gets going in New York. And I'm hoping that it does, because like you said, it is very strict. And I do think in some parts of it's very um, serving to the, the gestational carrier um, without taking into consideration some of the aspects for intended parents that are really important, specifically financially, um, it's going to be very, you know, financially costly for an intended parent to utilize a New York surrogate, it seems. Right. You know, I, I agree. I, you know, I thought people always ask me, well, do I think that um, more people do surrogacy now that uh, it's legal in New York? And I'm kind of like on, on the fence on that because, um, you know, on one hand, you think it would open up more candidates to become surrogates, mm -hmm. but the financial burden is placed on the intended parents by working with a New York surrogate, you know, will scare a lot of people away. So I'm on the fence, will it increase the number of intended parents doing surrogacy? Will it increase the number of women who want to become surrogates? You know, I'm not really sure about that, but I, like I say, it is, a, it is a step in the right direction. Yeah. You know, Susan, now it, it's like I tell my wife when I cook dinner, I say, listen, it may take me three or four times to perfect this meal I'm going to make for you, but eventually, hopefully I'll get it right. <laughs> and I'm sure she appreciates that. <laughs> no, only when I get it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been so fun talking to you and you have been so informative and you're so knowledgeable. And I love the fact that you have an education background because as midwives, you know, we're all about educating our patients and, um, so I really appreciate that when I get to talk to a doctor who also has that foundation and, you know, finds that such importance in education, um, because if you don't have the information, you can't make an informed decision. So it's so important. Exactly. And Susan, we could spend a whole hour talking about HIV and fertility. So if you ever want to talk about HIV and fertility, uh, let me know. Yeah. We can have a good discussion about that. Let's do it. We'll schedule that because that is... <laughs> just as fascinating as everything else we talked about today. So we'll definitely get that on the books. Excellent. Awesome. Well, I appreciate well, the time so and I appreciate yeah. the uh, talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Wow. That was amazing. A huge thank you to Dr. Thornton for joining us today and dropping his knowledge on us. I hope he was able to answer some of the questions intended parents in New York might have before starting their family with the help of third-party reproduction. We are going to be doing one of these every couple of weeks, so please make sure to find us on Spotify or FamilySourceConsultants.com. Until next time.
Bye.